One of my favorite things about A Song of Ice and Fire is the way that George R.R. R. Martin uses symbolism to give us clues about secret things. Take the others, for example, the mysterious White Walkers of the Woods. We only actually see them twice on page in the entire series. We see six of them in the Waymar Royce prologue of A Game of Thrones, and brave Samwell Tarly, Sam the Slayer, kills one with a dragonglass knife in a storm of swords. That really is amazing when you consider the long, pale shadow that the White Walkers cast over the entire story. This is exceptional writing on Martin's part. He likes the magic in his world to remain mysterious, and things like a shy by the shadow or the others would lose some of their mystique if we saw too much of them. Luckily for us, though, Martin is quite the clever writer, and he's thoughtfully hidden clues about the others all throughout the story for us to find. One of the ways he does this is through the use of a symbolic proxy, which in this case would be the Kingsguard. By using the same descriptive language for both the Others and the White Knights of the Kingsguard, our author is creating an intentional symbolic parallel which encourages us to think about the Kingsguard as symbolic stand-ins for the Others. First, we'll take a look at the basic set of descriptions of the others, and then compare those to that of the Kingsguard, and you'll quickly see what I mean. So hey there, it's Lucifer Means, Icebringer, and I'm back to reclaim another one of my original theories that's, at this point, running all around the internet, which is, of course, flattering. This is one of my favorite lines of symbolism, and a lot of things are built on top of it, so strap in and we'll take a look at the symbolism of the others and the Kingsguard. If you enjoy the video and you want to help support the program, of course, you can like and share, sign up for Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation by going to paypal.com me slash mythical astronomy. You don't even need a PayPal account. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the channel lately. We are growing strong and I got tons of stuff coming towards you until Winds of Winter comes out and a comet comes back around to break the moon again and rain down meteors and cause the long night. And it's probably going to be summoned by your own. It'll be blood magic. The A Game of Thrones prologue with Raymar Royce is where we get most of our descriptions of the others. And here's the very first one. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. Then it was gone. The term white shadow, pale shadow, cold shadow, or just shadow is by far the most common description of the others. For example, Lord Commander Mormont speaks of white shadows in the woods to describe the rising threat of the others. And when Gilly speaks with John about saving her baby from being given to the others, they both use the white shadow moniker. In A Feast for Crows, Sam reports that Maester Aemon's woken up and wants to hear about these dragons. He's talking about bleeding stars and white shadows and dreams. And clearly, Aemon is catching visions of the end times here, so these white shadows can only be white walkers. Sam thinks of the others as the white walkers of the wood, the cold shadows. And Tormund uses similar language to describe them, calling them shadows with teeth and shadows that never go away but are always clinging to your heels. Think about the way your shadow on the sidewalk appears to cling to your heels, but imagine that shadow is a white walker, and now you know how Tormund was feeling. The basic meaning of the term white shadow seems apparent. The others are shades in some sense, some sort of icy, ghost-like entity. It's also a delightful sort of marriage of opposites. Shadows are usually thought of as dark, but these shadows are white and pale. And we know how George Martin loves that sort of thing. The second glimpse of the others in the prologue reinforces all of these ideas. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. 
These white shadows from the woods have pale, milk-white flesh and reflective ice armor, and they're compared to old bones, which are also a milky-white color. When we see Sam stab a White Walker in a storm of swords, we actually catch sight of the bones of the others, which are, quote, like milk glass, pale and shiny, and it also has bone-white hands in that scene. Again, we see the same set of words, milk pale, bone white, snow white. No dwarves, though unless you count the children of the forest. Only a moment earlier, when the other dismounted its dead horse to face Sam, we got this line. The other slid gracefully from the saddle to stand upon the snow. Sword slim it was, and milky white. In a manner of speaking, the others are like milky white ice people, with lots of sword symbolism. Their bones look like milk glass, which reminds us of Dawn, of course, a shiny white sword which is pale as milk glass. And now the others themselves are described as swords. They're milky white and sword slim. The ice swords that the others wield are called pale swords as well, among other things. So we can say that the others are milky white sword people who wield pale swords and have bones that look like pale swords. Combine all of that with the persistent white shadow moniker and the idea of armor made of ice and those cold blue star eyes, of course, and we have a pretty good basic idea of the language used to bring the others to life. And now let's have a look at those magnificent white knights of the Kingsguard, whose sterling honor is absolutely beyond reproach. Bullshit! Here's Tyrion observing Joffrey in A Clash of Kings. Joffrey was galloping at his side, way-faced, with Sir Mandon Moore a white shadow on his left. Oh my, what's a white shadow doing so close to the king? Someone better warn him. Now, recalling that George describes the others as beautiful in interviews, check out Tyrion looking at Joffrey in a clash of kings. His two white shadows were always with him, Balin Swan and Mandon Moore, beautiful in their pale plate. Oh, this is terrible. The White Shadows have the king surrounded. Beautiful they may be, but I wouldn't trust them. Then, at the Battle of the Blackwater, on the Bridge of Burning Ships, a fallen Tyrion looks up at Sir Mandon Moore. Finally, he rolled over the side and lay breathless and exhausted, flat on his back. Balls of green and orange flame crackled overhead, leaving streaks between the stars. He had a moment to think how pretty it was before Sir Mandon blocked out the view. The knight was a white steel shadow, his eyes shining darkly behind his helm. Now, I'd love to talk about the meteor-like fiery streaks between the stars, but that's a different video, I'm afraid. Our attention turns to yet another white shadow Kingsguard, and this one certainly has bad intent, which is kind of becoming a theme. In A Feast for Crows, an increasingly paranoid Cersei Lannister runs a small council meeting and perceives, quote, shadows closing in around her as she sees treason lurking everywhere. One of those treasonous shadows is the Kingsguard Knight Sir Loras Tyrell, who is standing behind his little sister, a pale shadow with a long sword on his hip. Cersei may be paranoid and a bit mad, but she's probably right not to trust Loras, lurking like a pale shadow as he is. Even when the Kingsguard is looking glorious in the daylight, they manage to look like they are impersonating the others. This is Sansa's view of the hands turning at King's Landing during a Game of Thrones. They watch the heroes of a hundred songs ride forth, each more fabulous than the last. The seven knights of the Kingsguard took the field, all but Jaime Lannister, in scaled armor the color of milk, their cloaks as white as fresh fallen snow. As we just saw, in the Game of Thrones prologue, the ice armor of the others reflects their surroundings, and in places looks as white as new fallen snow, while here the Kingsguard knights take the field with cloaks as white as fresh fallen snow. 
as if they themselves were a snowstorm covering the field. And when we first meet Sir Barristan Selmy in A Game of Thrones, his white enameled scale armor is as brilliant as a field of new fallen snow. Snowy cloaks and snowy armor, I'm telling you, something is up with these white shadow Kingsguard. Also take notice of the fact that the Kingsguard here at the tourney have scaled armor the color of milk, which reminds us of the flesh of the others, which is as pale as milk. Speaking of milky white things, another component of the other's symbolism is, of course, the moon. We are from the moon. They're from the moon! You rented that room to moon people? We are the Moonanites, and our culture has advanced beyond all that you can possibly comprehend with 100% of your brain. The real others only come out in the moonlight. The serious moonlight. And thus we see that the shifting patterns on their ice armor ran like moonlight on water, and that their pale swords are alive with moonlight. We might even think of the corpse queen of the Night's King legend, who had blue star eyes like the others and skin as white as the moon. With all that in mind, let's continue looking at the descriptions of the Kingsguard. This is Sansa in A Clash of Kings. Below, she could see a short knight in moon-pale armor and a heavy white cloak pacing the drawbridge. From his height, it could only be Sir Preston Greenfield. Sir Greenfield is wearing the same cloak that was just described as white as a new-fallen field of snow. So I guess he's a white field now. But check out that moon-pale armor. That's the kind of stuff the others would like to wear, I'm thinking. And then back in A Game of Thrones, Ned sees a Kingsguard on that same bridge, and the description again fits the others, but in a slightly different way. Sir Boros Blount guarded at the far end of the bridge, white steel armor ghostly in the moonlight. The Sir... Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. Just a moment ago, I said that the others are like white swords themselves, being milky white, sword-slim creatures with milk glass-like bones. And the same is true here of the Knights of the Kingsguard, who are, of course, called the White Swords and reside in the White Sword Tower. That's cool, but what's even cooler is that Sir Boros Blount here, the White Sword, has ghostly moonlight playing about him in the scene. And haven't we seen a pale sword with ghost light and moonlight playing about it before? The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a longsword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. It's a pale sword looking ghostly in the moonlight, just as Sir Boros is a white sword looking ghostly in the moonlight. Sir Boros is lacking only the faint blue shimmer. You may recall Jamie Lannister's weirwood stump dream from A Storm of Swords, where he sees not one ghostly white sword, but five. They were armored all in snow, it seemed to him, and ribbons of mist swirled back from their shoulders. Jamie is, of course, here having a dream of dead Rhaegar and the dead Kingsguard that he knew from his time. And once again, we see the snow armor motif. Now they really sound like White Walkers. Ghostly white knights, armored in snow, with mist swirling from their shoulders. It's even mentioned that they make no sound when they walk, just as the others make no sound. I mean, this is really on the nose here. George very clearly wants us to think about the others when we see the Kingsguard. It's kind of like one of those there-are-two-answers things. I'm a milk-pale, ice-armored white shadow, looking ghostly and beautiful in the moonlight. Who am I? There are two answers. It could be the others or the Kingsguard. And we've barely even begun to talk about Sir Barristan Selmy. 
Alright, so let's turn our attention to the last living legend of the Kingsguard, Sir Barristan Selmy. Although I know you Arthur Dane truthers are out there. For whatever reason, Barristan has by far the most clues about the Kingsguard working as symbolic stand-ins for the others, most of which I have saved for now. First, check out his White Shadow street cred, and this is from A Dance with Dragons. Danny glimpsed Sir Barristan sliding closer, a white shadow at her side. Alright, so there's Barry the White Shadow, and then when Barristan meets with Skahas the Shavepate in the dark corners of the Great Pyramid of Marine, the text describes them as a pale shadow and a dark, with Barristan being the pale shadow, of course. You can take the Kingsguard out of King's Landing, but he's still a white shadow, it would seem. Sir Barristan is basically a model example of how to dress like another, from a Game of Thrones all the way through a Dance with Dragons. Here's the rest of that quote about Barry's snow-white armor from when Sansa meets him on the road to King's Landing. One knight wore an intricate suit of white enameled scales, brilliant as a field of new-fallen snow, with silver chasings and clasps that glittered in the sun. When he removed his helm, Sansa saw that he was an old man, with hair as pale as his armor, yet he seemed strong and graceful for all that. From his shoulders hung the pure white cloak of the King's Guard. Alright, that is one snowy dude. His armor is like a field of new-fallen snow, and his hair matches. Sure sounds like a white walker to me. He's even graceful like the other that Sam faced, who slid gracefully from its saddle. And did I mention Barry has blue eyes? It's true. Sweet baby blues to go along with his snowy hair and armor. Later on, he grows his beard out and takes the false name Arston Whitebeard. Oh uh, yeah, uh, Arston Whitebeard, oh uh, yeah. And that white beard, well, that thing is made out of snow too. His name was Arston, but Strong Belwis had named him Whitebeard for his pale whiskers, and most everyone called him that now. He was taller than Sir Jorah, though not so muscular. His eyes were a pale blue, his long beard as white as snow and as fine as silk. Let me put it this way, if Barristan wanted to dress up like a White Walker for Halloween, he'd barely have to do anything at all. Give the man an ice spear and a wee bit of face paint, and he's pretty much all set. When Danny meets him as Whitebeard in A Clash of Kings, he's introduced as an otherish type of guy. The other man wore a traveler's cloak of undyed wool, the hood thrown back. Long white hair fell to his shoulders, and a silky white beard covered the lower half of his face. The other man. Aha! That explains the snowy hair, beard, and armor. Barristan, the other man, also has a cloak of undyed wool, meaning whitish or milky white wool, and his white hair and beard are highlighted. The white wool cloak seems to be a pretty low-hanging clue for the reader that Arston used to be a white cloak of the Kingsguard. And indeed, Barry steps right into his classic role and introduces himself to Danny by saving her from the basilisk that the sorrowful man was trying to kill her with. Later in A Dance with Dragons, Barristan again saves Danny's life, this time from the ex-warlord Miro, and it's pretty awesome. Miro has emerged from the crowd of freed slaves to menace Danny, with no protection in sight, until... Danny was dimly aware of Missandei shouting for help. A freedman edged forward, but only a step. One quick slash, and he was on his knees, blood running down his face. Miro wiped his sword on his breeches. Who's next? I am. Arston Whitebeard leapt from his horse and stood over her, the salt wind riffling through his snowy hair, both hands on his tall hardwood staff. This is Barristan's big Hollywood moment here, complete with the authoritative one-liner and hair blowing gloriously in the wind. 
It's snowy white hair blowing in the wind, which is cool. But what's even better is that the way he ends the fight with Miro seems to be written as an intentional parallel to the way the White Walker finished off Waymar in the Game of Thrones prologue. If you recall, when the other shattered Waymar's sword and wounded his eye, it said that the other's parry was almost lazy. And then after that, the others waiting in the woods advanced and all stabbed Waymar in, quote, cold butchery. Now here's the fight with Barristan and Miro. Whitebeard put Danny behind him. Miro slashed at his face. The old man jerked back, cat quick. The staff thumped Miro's ribs, sending him reeling. Arston splashed sideways, parried a looping cut, danced away from a second, checked a third mid-swing. The moves were so fast she could hardly follow. Missande was pulling Danny to her feet when she heard a crack. She thought Arston's staff had snapped until she saw the jagged bone jutting from Miro's calf. As he fell, the titan's bastard twisted and lunged, sending his point straight at the old man's chest. Whitebeard swept the blade aside almost contemptuously and smashed the other end of his staff against the big man's temple. Miro went sprawling, blood bubbling from his mouth as the waves washed over him. A moment later, the freedmen washed over him too, knives and stones and angry fists rising and falling in a frenzy. All right, so Barristan is dancing away from Miro's strikes, just as the others danced with Sir Waymar. You remember he said, dance with me then. Barristan also splashes out of the way, which is a curious line, but of course, when the others melt, they splash too. Barristan thumps Miro in the ribs before delivering the killing blow, just as the other first stabs Waymar's side before shattering his sword and killing him. Miro dies, gushing blood from his ruined face, just as Sir Waymar does. Most obviously, the almost contemptuous parry that finishes Miro is followed by the freedmen rushing in to stab him, just as the almost lazy parry of the other that finished Waymar was followed by the other others rushing in to stab Waymar. The, quote, knives and stones and angry fists of the mob are rising and falling in a frenzy, which compares very well to the rising and falling swords of Waymar's cold butchery, and here's the line. The watchers moved forward together, as if some signal had been given. Swords rose and fell, all in a deathly silence. It was cold butchery. That's right, Sir Barristan not only looks like a White Walker, he's even reenacting one of their famous battles in exquisite detail. And of course, there's only two White Walker battles on page, one of which they lose, so there's really not that many choices. So, in return for this great deed and for other fine service, Danny decides to reward Sir Barristan with a suit of, checks notes, ice armor. Yeah. First he'll need to scrub off that pesky flesh, though. The water, when it came, was only lukewarm, but Selmy lingered in the bath until it had grown cold and scrubbed his skin till it was raw. Clean as he had ever been, he rose, dried himself, and clad himself in whites. Stockings, small clothes, silken tunic, padded jerkin, all fresh washed and bleached. Over that, he donned the armor that the queen had given him as a token of her esteem. The mail was gilded, finely wrought, the links as supple as good leather, the plate enameled, hard as ice, and bright as new-fallen snow. So he scrubs his skin off in the cold bath, leaving him a cold skeleton, then suits up into his snow-white ice armor. Once again, I say this is pretty on the nose, since the others quite literally wear armor made of ice that reflects as white as new-fallen snow. Barristan had snow-white armor all the way back in book one, and here he is in book five with armor hard as ice. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention. And bright as new-fallen snow. Hopefully it should be clear by now that the Kingsguard are indeed symbolic parallels to the others. Barristan shows it the most clearly, but all of these white shadows are consistently wearing some sort of other's symbolism, as you can see. Mm -hmm. 
The big question is, what does it all mean? Well, if I tried to answer that question, we'd have another 20 minutes of video, and instead I'm just going to leave it here and let you guys post your answers in the comments below. Why do the Kingsguard symbolize the others? And then at some point I'll be back with part 2 to give you my answer, or you can check out the full theory in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, which you can find in the Mythical Astronomy podcast feed and on my YouTube page, of course. In the meantime, I'd invite you to speculate on what you think this other's Kingsguard parallel means, because that's part of the fun. Then you can join me next time and see what you think of my answer. Thank you.